0: Father, uh, your names do say it all, and as your family of name-bearers, we are overjoyed to announce them wherever we go, because you are a generous and loving God for all, eager for all to come to know you in your Son. We pray, uh, we hope that your heart has been made full by our singing, because you're worth it, and we love you and we know you're here with us, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Do you appreciate our worship leaders as much as I do? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, especially you news junkies, does the name Richard Ploud ring a bell for you? No. Anyone heard of Richard Ploud? Uh, Ploughed was in the headlines recently for making a two-story model of the Eiffel Tower with matchsticks. Uh, Maybe some of you heard about this. Check it out. Uh, It took him eight years and 706,000 matchsticks glued together to construct his 24-foot tower. He now holds the world record for tallest matchstick structure. Who knew that was even a thing? I did not. Uh, There was some controversy though for the reason that uh, over the question of whether Ploud stuck to the rules of the contest. Nevertheless, he was able to successfully convince uh, the Guinness World Book Records that he was legitimate and he was named to the world record. Congratulations, Richard. Well, uh, this feel-good story about somebody building something according to very specific rules caught my attention uh, this week because of today's topic, which is the building of the tabernacle. Tabernacle, meaning the dazzling, movable tent that housed the God of the Exodus for 440 years, starting with the journey through the Sinai. And if you have been here at Hillside over the last two months, you know we've been in a series from the book of Exodus that has been called The Rise of the Name Bearers. And the big idea of the series, the the thread that's worked its way throughout our study is that to belong to Jesus, to have a relationship with Him, to be saved by Him, forgiven by Him, to belong to Him is by definition... Is necessarily to be a member of his name bearing family. And that's your first fill in. Meaning, to belong to Jesus is by definition to be an honored member of a worldwide family that exists to spread saving knowledge of him everywhere. Three weeks ago, if you were here, you know that we relived the story of the parting of the Red Sea. Greatest story in the Old Testament. And in that story, we saw how in uh, taking the people of Israel through the Red Sea, God forged this pack of ruffians into a, a people, a nation, A a, a family, a a royal family, and we learned in that message that when people come to Christ today, when they believe in Jesus today, their baptism places them within that family with that special purpose. And you could say that Christianity, unlike other uh, spiritualities on offer, is irreducibly corporate, In fact, I wish I could say that there is no I in Christian. Uh, But it doesn't quite work. There are two. Uh, Same problem with disciple. But you you understand the point. Christianity is a team sport. It's a, a we statement. And of course, you're showing that you get that. Because you're here today. And just by being here today, you have given a boost to every other person in this church family. Praise God, I praise God for you. But again, Christianity is a team sport. Two weeks ago in Stephen's sermon on Israel in the desert, we saw how God began to train his family and and lesson number one in the desert was to trust in him. To trust in him that this great and powerful and, and a little fearsome God is gonna meet their needs. And every day we have an opportunity to keep uh, learning that lesson, to remember that God is always there to care for us, to meet our needs. And then last week we learned from Wayne how God called his special family to display him and to, to do so by living in the world in a very distinct way, in a way that, that, that led to, to justice and goodness inside the family. Well, today we reach the next chapter of this great Exodus saga. And to set the stage, in chapter 24, uh, God has just ratified a covenant with his people that he's formed. And basically what that means is uh, they've come up with an agreement on how they're going to live together. And these are the basic terms of the agreement. Yahweh is going to be their personal God, treating them with uh, love and compassion. And they, in turn, are going to be his treasured possession people. They are gonna be his name-bearing people and they are going to express his goodness throughout the world through a very unique style of life, through living according to 10 uh, life-enhancing, community-forming commandments. And you'll also remember from Wayne's sermon last week that one of those 10 commandments, the one that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, that commandment Is actually best understood not as a a prohibition against swearing or profanity, though certainly it includes that. But rather, we learn that that commandment is really fundamentally—it's a a sweeping call to God's people to live into that name-bearing purpose. It, with all that we do. And by the way, I see people doing that at this church everywhere. It's happening all over the place. I mean, you, Hillside, you are living into your name-bearing purpose. I mean, just this is just stuff in the last three or four weeks around Hillside. You, you have cared for special needs families in our community by providing a respite day for parents. And in so doing, you have... Born the name of God, you've helped people to see something about this God who who cares deeply and appreciates people who are caring for the vulnerable. Here's another way you've done it. You've fed people at the Trinity Center, people who don't have enough to eat. God's a God of great abundance. You went down there, you've prepared meals for people. In fact, we had students doing that. Uh, You've worked for justice in Thailand and Myanmar. You've actually put work into thinking about what can we do to eliminate the scourge of trafficking uh, in in Myanmar. And, And here's another thing you did just in the last month in terms of name bearing. And I'll tell you, this is something now very, very close to my heart as you might be able to imagine. You have helped children in great need in the Dominican Republic know who Jesus is by resourcing them, giving them food, giving them love, Welcoming them into the arms of a loving church. You're doing it, Hillside. You're doing it. Praise God for that. Well, after this covenant ratification ceremony at the foot of the mountain, the Lord tells Moses to come up the mountain. And um, that brings us to today's story. I'm going to pray again. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I want you to move this morning we want you to move this morning and your presence in a worship service is always the difference between a lecture and a life-giving experience of your word so holy spirit come near to us in power in this moment and we pray in christ's name amen chapter 25 the Lord starts out by uh, telling his people or telling Moses to take a, a free will offering from uh, the people. And then he does something really interesting. The Lord throws a curveball. Listen to what he says. This is verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall Make it interesting what the Lord says in these verses. Of course, if, if you're new to Exodus, you, you, you don't know what's coming, but you're reading carefully, these verses will actually surprise you. And that's because at the end of chapter 24, God has just told Moses to come up on the mountain so that he can give Moses the tablets containing the commandments. But in the beginning of chapter 25, just as soon as Moses gets up there, what does he do? He doesn't talk about the commandments. He springs on him this building project. And this is uh, not what Moses is expecting. It's not what we're expecting as readers. And what we have here starting at chapter 25 are seven detailed chapters, seven chapters of detailed instructions for building this tabernacle, this uh, movable temple for God Live in. But now get this, seven chapters, get this. As we're gonna see in two weeks when we wrap up Exodus, the Lord repeats these instructions <laughs> in the last six chapters of Exodus. And it's almost exactly the same. The final six chapters of Exodus, chapters 35 through 40, are almost an exact copy of today's seven chapters. All right? This means, get this, 13 of Exodus's 40 chapters are about the building of this tabernacle. I mean, think about that for a second. Think about the weight given to this tent. And to give you some perspective, the Bible describes the making of the temple 440 years later in three chapters, 1 Kings 5-7. through The Bible needs just one chapter to describe the making of heaven and earth, (laughs) Genesis one. The Bible takes 13 chapters to describe the making of this tabernacle, think about that. One third of the book of Exodus, which as we have seen is Particularly important for the grand story of the Bible. In fact, you'll remember from week one, the Exodus is the story underneath the story of the Bible, right? One third of that book is devoted to the tabernacle, which means, and there's our second fill-in, that God obviously desires our tabernacle awareness. <laughs> he he must want this tent staked in our minds. He, he wants this imprinted in our imaginations as Christians living today for some reason. He must have something important to tell us in it. I'm gonna propose two lessons from the tabernacle and I'm gonna call these things two realizations we make from tabernacle awareness. But in reality, the realizations, looking at the whole Christian story with the tabernacle as a background actually leads to numerous realizations, uh, which we'll all make as we keep reading scripture over the course of our lives. But here's how we're gonna make the best, the use of our time. For exactly seven minutes, Goo, you can set your watch. I'm going to take us for a tour of uh, the tabernacle. We're gonna walk through it, and then after that, we are going to talk about what its significance is for us as the name bearers uh, of God today. Now, maybe you're thinking, you know, is what follows over the course of six minutes and 40 seconds going to be tedious? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Think about this. An exquisitely made, I mean beautifully made, down to the detail, movable temple, constituted, constructed according to blueprints that God devises and gives to Moses. This is fascinating. But whether or not this captures you like it it does me. Stay with me as we take this tour because the payoff, it requires that we have a feel for this thing. And it's got quite a few features to it which we will hardly exhaust, okay? Stick with me. Down to five minutes and 45 seconds. Check out this diagram right here. So you can see the tabernacle consisted of uh, a a, a tent of meeting, a tent and a courtyard and the the whole complex was big. It was 150 feet long, it was 75 feet wide and it was uh, surrounded with uh, exquisitely made curtains. And on the east side of this movable temple it had an entrance covered with a screen made of beautifully woven uh, yarn. Uh, very, very colorful. And as you can see from the diagram, really just inside this eastern entrance, uh, very close to the, the way you go in, was the bronze altar called the Altar of Burnt Offering. And it was made of fine wood, and it was, it was overlaid with bronze. And this is where uh, they had two standard sacrifices each day. One year old lamb in the morning Lamb is important. And then at twilight, another sacrifice of a lamb every single day for 440 years. And this altar is also where just numerous other sacrifices were made each day for the whole nation as as people brought the prescribed animals to the tabernacle. And of course, this is the site of innumerable sacrifices over 440 years. Okay, moving to the west, further into the complex uh, was a basin for washings. And this is where the priests engaged in ceremonial washings before going into the tent or performing sacrifices. And unlike the bronze altar, which was made of wood and overlaid in bronze, the basin was entirely cast of bronze. And this is part of a, a pattern that we see with a ta- tabernacle that's actually significant. The further in you go, the more precious the materials and the more exquisite the workmanship, hold that thought in mind. Moving past the basin, we reached the tent, tabernacle proper, and it's 45 feet long, it's 15 feet wide, it's 15 feet high, which means that you could see it from outside the courtyard, because those curtains were only about seven and a half feet tall. And for an opening, it had this exquisitely made blue screen. Moving a little further to the tent itself, it had two sections holy place and the most holy place or the holy of holies. And it was separated by a blue veil. And that blue veil looked a lot like the veil uh, to the opening of the whole thing with with one significant difference. The, the, The veil inside separating those two chambers had exquisitely embroidered cherubim throughout it. And cherubim were these fearsome Four-faced angelic beings, sentries that guarded the holiness of God. And, And when you hear cherubim, it might ring a big biblical bell for you because in Genesis, the gate or the entry to Eden was guarded by cherubim after Adam and Eve collapsed and were sent out. Brings us to the first chamber of the tent, the holy place. Inside the first section of the tent, three items. There was a table there and the table had utensils, everything you would need to eat because somebody lives here. There's a lampstand in the shape of a tree and an altar of incense where other daily rites were observed. Moving further to the east, the most sacred place in the Tent of Meeting, the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was a a 15-foot cube that had one thing in it, had the Ark of the Covenant, which back in chapter 25, the Lord tells the people to build first. And this ark was exquisitely made of acacia wood and then it was overlaid with pure gold. And inside the ark were the two tablets of the 10 commandments. So here's where we're getting to the really important stuff. The lid of the ark was made of pure gold and it was called the mercy seat. And on top of that, tabernacle or that ark lid made of pure gold were a pair of cherubim hammered out of gold made of, pure, made of pure gold and they had wings outstretched over the top of the lid, over the top of the ark and they stretched at each other and then the face of each cherubim, they're sort of both looking towards each other and then looking down towards the, uh, towards the box itself. And it was there on the, the, the platform formed by the wings of the cherubim that Yahweh himself would descend and meet with his people. The wings formed like a throne for him. That's seven minutes, right? Very good, Keon. <laughs> What's the significance? What does the living Lord want us to learn from this? 13 chapters. Why is this important? What does tabernacle awareness teach us as contemporary name bearers? I'm gonna give you two possibilities. This time, let's move from the inside out, the most fundamental to somewhat speculative. I think this is absolutely fundamental. I want you to catch this. The first thing we learn from this, from tabernacle awareness, is our direct access to God which we enjoy as people who belong to Jesus by faith, is our most precious possession. This is a miracle. It's a gift of incalculable value because it wasn't always like this. Striding into the Lord's presence like we have today, He's here, and doing it with complete freedom, complete confidence. I mean, there's no question that the tabernacle was a blessing to the people of Israel. It gave them some kind of access to God. And in the sacrifices, they could meet with God in some way. In fact, God even says this in Exodus 29, 43. He says, there, the tabernacle, I'll meet with the people of Israel. But at the same time, think about it. Think about how mixed this experience would have been. First of all, it, didn't think, it involved the constant slaying of animals over and over again. This could not have been pleasant. I mean, even for ancient people living in a pastoral culture who were less squeamish than we are, animal after animal after animal, the cry, the blood, the innards, this was the reality. But second and more importantly, the access was only partial. At its very best, ordinary worshipers, the farthest they could even go was just really a few feet into this complex, just steps into this this place. Priests could go a little further. They could go into the holy place, but then they would hit a hard stop at that blue curtain with a cherubim exquisitely uh, stitched in only one person, one guy, once a year, the high priest, could experience the Lord's direct presence. One guy, one time a year. Uh, well, think about what that would have been like. I mean, the Lord so close in a certain way. You, know, you could be outside the courtyard. You could look over the seven and a half foot curtain and you could see the structure. And you, somehow you'd think he's in there. He's in there. And yet so far away i mean even when you when you got to go in you're you're just a few feet in and you got to bring animals i think about how different it is for us today who have been united with the son of god i mean think about the direct access we have to god himself the creator god in all of his awesome holiness and all of his splendor because jesus ushered in a new covenant jesus Change the terms, like Hebrews 9/11 says, "By going into the true tent, the one in the heavenlies, and bringing his own blood with him and offering a perfect once-for-all sacrifice for all time, we who belong to Jesus by faith, we can go right into God's holy presence, in reality. It's not rhetoric, it's true. We who belong to God by faith in Jesus, we can go right in. And the reason is scripture says that Jesus is the true tabernacle. That's John 1.14. And then the scripture says that Jesus is the true mercy seat. That's Romans 3.25. And because Jesus is the true spotless Lamb of God. That's John 1.29. In fact, the author of Hebrews is so struck by this. He's got such extensive tabernacle awareness that you know what he does, the inspired writer? He says to us, Christians everywhere up till today, saying this, to us, telling us this today, to go in. The way is open. Go in. In fact, he says something that should startle us at some level. He says in Hebrews ten twenty nine to go in. He says, give God what he wants. Go into his presence. And then he says, to not do so, to squander that privilege that has come at such an extraordinary cost, he says this, (laughs) Hebrews 10, 29, is to outrage the spirit of grace (laughs) because of the significance of what God has done in giving us access. Listen to the big therefore of the tabernacle. The big therefore the fact that Jesus has fulfilled what it promised. This is Hebrews 10, 19. These are some of the most important passages in all of God's word. If you're somebody who writes in your Bible, underline them and never forget them. Listen, therefore, meaning therefore, in light of what Jesus has accomplished by fulfilling what the tabernacle promised. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that's the holy of holies, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Those words powerful, familiar, and don't they have a special power when you read them in context? It's in light of what God has done and giving us access to the Holy of Holies. That's why we gotta keep coming together. And what's this come down to? I think it's this. Let's, fellow disciples, let's never take our most holy place ticket for granted, ever. Let's savor it. Let's remember what it was like before, how partial access to God was before Christ came and brought something much, much better. And let's remember how costly that access was. It cost the lifeblood of the Son of God himself. And it seems to me tabernacle awareness should make us eager every day, every day on our own with our spiritual companions in our small groups to enter the Holy of Holies and be near the God of the Exodus who wants us and loves us and has moved heaven and earth to make it possible for us to bear his splendid, holy presence. And what's more, this tabernacle awareness, it should sharpen the good news that we have to share as the name-bearing family of God. And here's one way to express it. We can say this. We can say to people, full access to the I am is available to anyone, It's available to you if you come to him through Christ. This is part of the news we have to share. And what do people need more than relationship with God himself? The second realization we make from tabernacle awareness. This one might not have occurred to us but I think If we step back from all the detail, it sort of jumps off the page. God's name bearers are called to keep building. Think about the Exodus plot. After rescuing them, after forging them into this family of name bearers, what does he do? He gives them a building project. He gives the name bearers something to do together, something to build together, together, something both functional and beautiful, the function being relationship with God. And I think there is a timeless principle here for us today, living on this side of the cross. The name-bearing family should always be seeking to build things (laughs) that facilitate relationship with God, both ours and the world we've been called to share Jesus with. And by the way, there's room for creativity here. There's room for all sorts of creativity. Throughout these chapters, it's true that the Lord tells Moses that they're to build this tabernacle according to a plan, according to blueprints that God shows Moses on the mountain. But at the same time, this is so interesting. He communicates that there will be room for human creativity, human innovation, uh, human imagination. And this is clear from the Bible itself, from how he says it will be built. Listen to this. This is Exodus 31 verse one. The Lord tells Moses at the end of these instructions he's already appointed a leader to oversee the construction, and what's more, here are the key verses, verse one, God says he's already filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, and get this, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. Key words here, artistic design. I love this. God's given them a building project. It's got clear specifications, but within those specifications is space, space to do what we were created to do, create things, make things, add to things, build them up, improve them, artistic design designs. And I think what was true then is true today. God has given us the name-bearing family. Yeah, we have a clear mission. Help everyone know and follow King Jesus. It's the Great Commission. But within those specifications, there's room to dream, to imagine, to create, to use our own brains to think what would actually make this community just a more effective place for people to meet God and grow up in Him. And again, I see this all over Hillside. Praise God. All over, I see individuals and groups building together in different ways, actual stuff, policies, plans. That's all building to make this place a more fitting place for people everywhere to know and follow King Jesus. And it's not just in here. I see people all throughout Hillside working to build things outside the church to display the Creator God. Just a few weeks ago, I wandered into the youth room and I found two members of our anti-trafficking team at a table building together. They weren't building with bricks or silver or gold, they were building with legal pads and pencils and pens and they were planning the next thing we'll do together to try to eliminate the scourge of trafficking at Hillside, building together. There's a, a, a team at Hillside, Micah 6 group, they're building together. Two or three times a month they meet in the church office and they're building together thinking, God cares so much about justice What does that mean for Hillside to participate in that? How do we build on that foundation? Praise God for them. Let's keep doing what we're doing. Let's keep adding artistic designs, you could say, to the building that God has given us. And what is that thing he wants us to build in general? It's a community for people everywhere to, to know him and to be changed by him and to become a a, a, a true human being, fully alive, full of joy, able to make a difference in the world. We're we'll going to bring this to a close. Remember the matchstick Eiffel Tower. that ring a bell. I mentioned there was some controversy, which is why the story went viral. After submitting his tower, Richard Ploud was told that his tower was ineligible because the matches he used were not commercially available. And you see, Richard Ploud got tired of snipping the sulfuric tip off each one of the 700,000 matches. So he went to the company directly and asked if they would make him tipless matches for his tower, completely innocently. Well, first the Guinness officials said that this ran afoul of the rules, but then good sense prevailed. (laughs) And Plowd convinced them that, you know, his modified matches were were really okay. (laughs) Anybody could do this. And he got the, the world record. Why do I tell you this? Here's why. Here's the point. Friends, the things that we build together here at Hillside to meet Jesus, those things are like clouds, matchstick, Eiffel Tower. They don't have flammable tips, which means that at the end of the age, they won't go up in flames. They will last. You see, God's word teaches that at the end of the age, everything built in this life, everything. It's gonna be tested. It's gonna be revealed by fire. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, everything we do, going to be tested. And that which was built to honor King Jesus, that which was built to help other people, that which was built to enhance human flourishing no matter how humble, no matter how crude, it's going to survive those purifying flames, Paul says, and it will contribute to our eternal joy. Well, friends, the stuff we built together here at Hillside, it's stuff like that. It's stuff that will last forever. So let's keep doing what we're doing and let's keep building together. It's time for communion. Jesus is with us, he's here, he's the host. I think with our tabernacle awareness we can actually take this meal with new wonder, I hope. Because the Holy of Holies is open to us. The curtain has been torn. In Ephesians three twelve, Paul says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So in this meal, which is for those of us who are in Christ, who belong to him, let's go to him. Let's, when we're taking it, let, let's, let's, Remember who we're with. Let's remember who we are. And let's give God what He wants more than anything our hearts, our focus, our attention, our love. Let's pray to Him while we're taking. Let's talk to Him. Let's listen back. And we can do this because we are cleansed because of what Jesus has done on the cross. We're cleansed. We're free. We can approach. Pastor Jane.